Well, welcome to the Hills. Thank you for joining us today. Now, if you joined for the first time last week, already you are disappointed. You're thinking, where is that really smart lady last week who said all those sharp things? Well, Jamie, my wife, is not with me today. I want to begin by saying thank you for the kind feedback. Uh, I appreciate all the kindness and love that she got, especially. I didn't necessarily appreciate all the emails I got about my job security. Uh, If it makes you feel better, I'm going to let Jamie write more of my sermons in the future. We're in this series called Pick and Choose, and we're suggesting that when we pick someone to marry, we're just beginning a lifetime of choices. And there are certain choices that are huge that really help us have the marriage we want to have. We we choose, as followers of Jesus, uh, die over my. We choose we over me. And last week, Jamie and I suggested that we must choose truth over myth and learn to take captive thoughts that are not in line with God's Word. Uh, Well, Next week, we're going to close the series by talking about choosing better over bitter. And I want your help, because next week we're going to have a teaching I've never heard in any church before. We're going to ask the question, how does someone who follows Jesus deal with the pain of divorce? Is there a way to honor God after a divorce? And you know a lot of people who've been through that pain And I would encourage you to get the word out about that message. Because here's the thing. Marriage is good, but that doesn't mean that it's easy. So I heard about a Sunday school teacher who announced to her little class that her daughter was going to get married. And she said, do you have anything that we should pray for my daughter before she gets married? And one little boy held up his hand and said, How about, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, okay? (laughs) Did any of us really know what we were doing when we got married? See, most newlyweds get married thinking, we are now embarking on a journey of happily ever after. And like I said last week, the reason happily ever after is in fairy tales is because it is a fairy tale. And what you learn real fast in marriage is you better learn the importance of happy even after. And if you're a Christian, I would suggest that you need to learn that mutual happiness is not even the most important goal of marriage. That as a follower of Jesus, one of the big choices you make with your mate is this. We're going to choose holy over happy, that kingdom people put a priority on pursuing holiness and especially in all things marriage. Here's what God's Word says in Hebrews chapter 13. Marriage should be honored by everyone and husband and wife should keep their marriage pure. Now this is a big deal to God. He wants our marriages to be a platform for displaying holiness to the world. But God also uses marriage as a platform for developing holiness. What do I mean by holiness? Well, I'm simply saying it is our responsibility as believers to pursue the likeness of Jesus, that we want to live like, to love like, to talk like Jesus. 
That's what I mean by holiness. This is not an elective for some Christians. This is the destination and goal of every Christian, whether you're married or not. This is not an elective. You should want to become more like Jesus. That's what it means to be a disciple or an apprentice of Jesus. But if you're a married Christian, then holy matrimony is a particularly effective course to take if you want a degree in holiness. See, here's the thing. Marriage helps me be more like Christ. I'm not suggesting you have to be married to become like Christ. I'm saying that marriage is an effective tool for helping me grow in holiness. Because here's the deal. Marriage is going to change you. Can I get a oh yeah? <laughs> marriage is going to change you. So the real question is, what is my expectation of what that change should be? And for many people, the answer is, well, my expectation of marriage is that I'm going to be more happy. That I expect marriage to make me more happy. Now think about what you've just put on your mate. It's your responsibility for the next 20, 30, 50, 60 years to keep me perpetually happy. Now, if the purpose of marriage is happiness, then frankly, the marriage should only endure as long as it is fulfilling its purpose. And I just explained why we have such a huge divorce rate, not only in the nation, but even among Christians. If you think the goal of marriage is to make me happy, why should I stay married if it's not working? Now, I'm not lauding the virtue of unhappiness. What I'm doing is challenging the idea that personal happiness should be a Christian's highest goal. Where does the Bible ever teach that God gives crowns to the happiest? A Christian's highest goal should be conformity to the image of Christ. Now, again, do you have to be married to pursue that goal? Of course not. It doesn't matter whether you're married, single, divorced, widowed. Every Christian's goal should be to be conformed to the image of Christ. But what I'm suggesting is marriage is enrolling in the academy of character transformation. Or at least it should be. Marriage is a gym open 24-7 to train you in holiness. And let me suggest three ways this is true. First, because it helps me see the selfish in me. Now, I heard a joke recently that I was attracted to because my daughter is a mother-baby nurse. Now, in the story, this couple's had their first baby, and the nurse walks in, and the dad is holding the little baby, and the nurse says, what a good-looking baby. And the daddy beams and says, oh, thanks, but I bet you say that to all the new parents. And the nurse said, no, I don't. I only say that to the parents who have a really good-looking baby. And the father says, well, what do you say to the other parents? And I say, oh, that baby looks just like you. <laughs> okay. So here's the thing. It is hard for me to always be accurate in my assessment of me, especially when I was single. I lived for several years as a single adult before I got married. And here's the thing about it. I lived the way I wanted to live because my world revolved around me. That meant if I wanted to make the bed, I made it. But if I didn't, I didn't. 
If I wanted to leave my clothes on the floor, I left them there. I ate what I wanted to eat. I stayed up as late as I wanted to stay up. I watched what I wanted to watch on TV. And then I got married. And the hardest thing about the first year of our marriage is not what I learned about Jamie. It's what I learned about me. That I was more self-absorbed than I realized. God's gift to every married couple is a mirror that says, this is what you really look like. And marriage reveals so many parts of our lives where the Holy Spirit needs to be invited to do a holiness makeover. And it begins with the Spirit's conviction that I need to choose die over my. That when I stood next to my wife, I pledged at that altar, I pledged away my right to put myself first. When I proposed to Jamie, my proposal was an application for servanthood. Listen to Paul's words in Philippians. Now, these aren't two married couples specifically, but it is so pertinent to marriage. Here's what he says. When you do things, do not let selfishness or pride be your guide. Instead, be humble and give more honor to others than to yourselves. Do not be interested only in your own life, but be interested in the lives of others. Now, let me be clear. It is spiritual fraud to get married and then keep living like you're a single person. To keep living like every decision should center around who you are and what you want and what your agenda is. That is spiritual fraud. And so every day, as a follower of Jesus, trying to let the Holy Spirit do a makeover and remove my self-absorption, I should be asking the question, what am I doing for my mate today that is costing me something? And here's the thing. <laughs> At least in my case, the hardest sacrifices are the smallest ones. I want you to imagine at your marriage that God gave you a million dollars and said, now I want you to pour this out and sacrifice on your mate. And let's say dying for my wife, taking a bullet for her was a million dollars. I could do that. I could do that easier than I could just give away a quarter at a time over year after year. Marriage is training me in holiness because marriage is stressing and stretching and growing my giving muscles. And I can't become like Jesus if I don't grow as a sacrificial giver. And here's the thing. It teaches me that I can flex those muscles even when I don't want to. And that's the second thing marriage does. Marriage calls me to will when I don't feel. Now, let's get real for a second. Talking to all the married people, let's just be honest. There are going to be times 
when you fall out of like with your mate. I don't think there's been a day that I have not been in love with my wife. There have been some days when I have not been in like with her. No marriage that puts feel over will is going to make it. Because there's just going to be too many times when you're not going to be feeling it. So William Bennett served in President Reagan's cabinet. He's the author of a book called The Book of Virtues. And he talks about going to a wedding. And the young couple changed the vows. Instead of, I promise this and I promise this, as long as we both shall live, they changed just one word. In fact, they just changed one letter. They changed it to, as long as we both shall love. And with that one little change, they changed the prospect for their future. Instead of, I'm going to promise to you as long as I live, I'm going to promise to you as long as I'm feeling it. He said his wedding gift to them was paper plates. I want to suggest to you, married or single, the single most radical thing about the kingdom ethic of Jesus is that love does not love feels. Look at what Jesus said in Luke 6. Do to others what you would want them to do to you. Now, let's stop right there. Do you understand what a game changer that statement is? If the world lived one day by that ethic, we would live in a completely different world. We don't live by this ethic. We live by do to others like they do to you. If they're nice to you, you should be nice back. If they're ugly to you, you should be ugly back. That's not what Jesus said. Here's why. You don't even need faith in God to do to people like they do to you. You certainly don't need the power of the Holy Spirit to live by that ethic. But how does that make you different? Look what Jesus says. If you love only the people who love you, what praise should you get? Even sinners love the people who love them. And if you do good, by the way, that's how Jesus defines love. If you do good only to those who do good to you, what praise should you get? Even sinners do that. You see what Jesus is saying? He is calling his disciples, his apprentices, to a different ethic than the world practices. An ethic that requires faith. An ethic that's going to need the Holy Spirit. Jesus is saying love does, not love feels. Now think about it. Do you think Jesus felt like going to the cross? Now we know he did it. We can read right there in the Gospels. He wrestled with God and he surrendered to God's will. And that's what holy love does. Holy love is not only if love, it's even if love. It's not well only if you promise to this and only if you never that. But even if you this. And even if you never that. And that's how Jesus loves his bride, the church. Not because she is so beautiful, but he loves her this way to make her more beautiful. Now, this is something every Christian should learn, married or single. You don't have to be married to learn to love like this. But you're going to have trouble staying married if you don't learn. To love like this. 
God is not asking you to love who you thought your mate was or who you wish your mate was. God is asking you to love who they actually are. And He wants you to do what love does even when you're not feeling it. Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 reminds us that love patiently accepts all things. It always trusts, it always hopes, and it always endures. Love does. And the thing that people that want to become like Jesus must be most willing to do is forgive. And perhaps marriage is a better classroom for growing in this one way than any other. Marriage gives me a place to grow in grace. And so <laughs> I read a prayer that one wife wrote. Lord, I pray for wisdom to understand my husband, for patience to deal with his moods and ability to overlook his flaws. Because Lord, if I pray for strength, I'll beat him to death. Amen. <laughs> As I said last week, it is simply unrealistic to expect two people with sin natures to live together and never hurt each other. Now again, getting wounded is a universal experience. But in marriage, those opportunities to get hurt and to hurt are always there. In many ways they're deeper because it's from the person that's supposed to love you the most. And so a Christian marriage has got to become a union of two good forgivers. Now think about it. How can I grow as a forgiver if I am always happy? But it's in those unhappy moments that the possibility arises for a holy moment. Because two broken people decide they are going to allow grace to fill in the gap that has come between them. And what motivates the decision is remembering how God has responded to the gap between us and Him. As Paul put it in Colossians 3, bear with each other and forgive each other. If someone does wrong to you, forgive that person because the Lord forgave you. I think I've told before the story of the family having a special celebration for the 50th anniversary of their mother and father. And the grandkids gathered around grandma and said, Grandma, 50 years, what's the secret of a long and lasting marriage? And she said, you know, on the day we married, I made a list of 10 things. And I decided if your grandpa did these 10 things, I was going to immediately just forgive them. They said, Grandma, what did you put on the list? And she said, well, I never actually made a list, 
But every time your grandpa did something that made me really mad, I'd look at him and say, good thing for you, it's on my list. (laughs) I got an email from one of our church members who's been married for almost 40 years, and she talked about how crazy she still is in love with her husband. And she said, uh, not that you asked, because, well, you didn't, but if there were a few words of advice, I would give newlyweds again. I would give them these. Sometimes you just need to let comments fall to the floor. If you can laugh about any given situation, laugh. And number three, the main reason I'm happily married is because my husband gives me a lot of grace. Give each other a lot of grace. I've said all through this series, I'm arguing that God's goal for your marriage is so much bigger than just your personal happiness. God wants your marriage to be a chalkboard on which the character of Christ can be displayed to the world in a language that the world can understand. And the world gets grace when they see it. And here's the irony. You don't forfeit happiness by pursuing holiness. You don't. Because if you're going to pursue holiness, you're going to have to call on the strength of God's Holy Spirit. And He he fills you with love and joy and peace and patience. And here's what you find out you start to experience this settled kind of joy that doesn't change when circumstances do. And circumstances are going to change in every marriage. Choosing holiness actually leads to happiness. Because I think it leads to something even better. I said at the beginning of this message, that God is using our marriages to not just display holiness, to develop holiness, that, that marriage helps me become more like Christ. But here's the, here's the thing I want to close with. It helps me want more of Christ. Because even the best marriages realize something's still missing. So some years ago, there was a very popular movie and a very popular scene where the main actor said to the main actress, you complete me. And the women dabbed their eyes and the men rolled their eyes. And it's a great line. And it is a great lie. No other single person can ever complete you. Because you were made for a relationship with an eternal God. We were created to yearn for God. Do you understand marriage by design is a shadow of something even greater? So don't ask your mate to feel what only a relationship with God can feel. That's what marriage should do. It should make me yearn even more. For a relationship with Christ. And so, instead of asking your mate to do what only God can do, pray and encourage 
your mate. To pursue God. Here's a prayer you can pray over your husband or your wife from Ephesians. I always remember you in my prayers, asking the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, to give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you will know him better. Now, you talk about a prayer to pray over your wife or over your husband. My prayer for you, honey, is this, that God will give you a spirit of revelation so that you will know him even better. That's what marriage can do. That when you love your mate well, they will love Jesus more. There is no such thing as a wound-free, flaw-free marriage. But if your marriage is bringing you closer to Jesus, then you are in a great marriage. And so, keep it holy. And remember, eternally happy is on the way. Let me pray for us. And so God, I, I pray now for all hearing this message, regardless of their marital status, that you will fill them with a renewed passion for holiness, for conformity to the image of Jesus. And my prayer, especially for the husbands and wives listening, God, is that they will accept with great joy their responsibility to pray for to serve and to help their partner fall more in love with Jesus. We look forward to His return. We look forward to the ultimate marriage feast. And so we ask you, Jesus, come quickly. And until you do, help us all to be holy. For your glory and your namesake, we ask it. Amen.